0: A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point today would be through chapter 54 of Brandon Sanderson's The Well of Ascension, the second installment in the Mistborn Trilogy.
1: Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. What is going on today, Crossland?
0: There's some weird energy about that's making me fuck up the, like, clapping in and out of the episodes. Like, our devil's cut just completely forgot to, like, click the record button, which is... One of my only jobs at the beginning of the episode, and right before we started actually talking, I was waiting for you to count us in, and that's my job. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little all over the place today. I think.
1: Yeah, I know. I, we were just sitting there. I was like, "Whatever." <laughs> I didn't say it, but I like implied it with my like. I was like, "Yeah, when you're good, yeah, you know." And so you're doing the intro, so you have to you have to count us in. No, I, I feel that. I'm going to blame, uh, for us collectively, my hangover from this weekend.
0: Yep, I'll
1: take that. <laughs> you can you can blame my hangover for yourself. Um, I do. Excellent. Fuck you, Cross. God, I drank so much. So, with that, today is our 11th episode discussing The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. And we are going to chat about chapters 51 through 54. But before we do that, PJ, what are you drinking today?
0: So... I initially set out to not drink during today's episode because I have a, like my last final of school period tomorrow afternoon. So wanted to be like good to go for studying for that later on. You know how it goes. So what I made mm-hmm. was a seltzer, just LaCroix pure with Bitterman's Hellfire Habanero shrub. So I think for the amount of liquid that I put into this, I need a lot more of this like Hellfire shrub because I don't taste it at all, Hmm. but it's refreshing because it's sparkling water. So there's that, but I'll probably be adding more drips of that, but I decided to follow that up with a beer, which is mango, strawberry, pineapple, coconut brains, double fruit, smoothie sour from Drecker. So it's there. They have this, uh, this brains, and every release it's a different combination of fruits. So this week, it, as I said, mango, pineapple, strawberry, coconut. But the uh, the ingredients list is mango, more mango, strawberry, more strawberry, pineapple, more pineapple, coconut, more coconut, sea salt, lactose, and vanilla bean. Honestly, so much fruit that the actual sour part gets completely lost in the mix. But mm. still, I mean, it's like drinking juice. It's delicious.
1: Yeah, like a smoothie, like
0: literally drinking a smoothie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. What about you, Crowson? What are you drinking?
1: so i um didn't get the memo that you weren't planning on drinking, and I probably wouldn't have made a cocktail had you have said such a thing due to the aforementioned weekend hangover. However, I did instead make a cocktail because I'm a monster, and I treat my I treat the show very seriously, so I made a cocktail anyway because i'm <laughs>
0: That's oh, so it's all in person. the name of
1: professionalism, is it? It is all in the name of professionalism. Your reason is super valid though. Don't worry about it. You shouldn't feel guilty whatsoever. Definitely don't feel sure. guilty. So I am having a custom cocktail. It's kind of a it's adjacent to a lot of things. You know, it's it's based on some ingredients that I had left over from this weekend as well so what what it's called what i'm going to call it is Club's trust kind of our final week here with clubs so i felt like it was important to dedicate a cocktail to him as i really like him as a character throughout the story and it was one of those that i just felt like i wanted to you know honor with a cocktail so what i have here is 1.5 ounces plantation run one ounce of campari half an ounce of our two ounces of pineapple juice and three quarter ounce lime juice it is so tasty. This is so delicious. What is
0: the distinction between that and a jungle bird?
1: So jungle bird isn't going to have the orgeo. Okay. And has a different ratio of campari to rum. Gotcha. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think it's two, it's one and a half to three quarter versus one and a half to one. It's got less pineapple juice in it. And yeah, uses a Demerara versus the orgeo. I'm not going to lie. I definitely, it is very similar to a jungle bird. I knew that when I was like going into it. Um, But it's also, I just like the Orgeau as opposed to the Demerara simple. That almond flavor brings a lot to this, that I actually like this better than I like the Jungle Birds that I've made. Yeah,
0: I'd be willing to give that a shot because last time I had a Jungle Bird, I think I talked about this. I needed to pump it up with a lot more lime juice in order to make Mm -hmm. it feel balanced
1: in any sort of way. So I feel like Orgeau would help that along as well. Yeah, yeah. It just rounds it out and makes it really smooth in a in a different way that I didn't expect. I also, for the record, was out of every other simple syrup and I didn't want to make any. So that's another, this is another like, ah, this is what I have. And so I'm going to throw something together and kind of fuck around with the formula. So, yeah, you know, it worked nice. out. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I'm kind of incorrect there. I did have Demerara simple syrup in my fridge. I could have used Demerara. I chose not to. I could have made a jungle bird. <laughs> It shows not to. And then following that up, I'm having a beer that I've had on the show previously, but not for probably since Dark Age, um, at the very least, maybe even Iron Gold, Double Candy from Sycamore. It's their double IPA. Um, I've had a lot of their stuff on the show, but I don't think I've had Double Candy on the show since starting Mistborn. Okay. So. Awesome. Exciting. It's great. It's solid. It's really tasty. Um, It's a nine percenter brewed and canned in Charlotte, so. It's great. Good stuff. Okay, this week, we're kind of back to our regular format, so we aren't going into PJ's predictions like we did last week to kind of clear up all of that absolute nonsense. Uh, (laughs) Instead, we are going into our chapter breakdown here. So we start off with chapter 51. We open up the conversation this week with Vin, contemplating all of the stimuli around her, the mist, the deepness, and whether she is mad or potentially the hero of ages, she's kind of at this crossroad in many different ways right now and that miss spirit is sitting in the tent with her and ellen as she's able to feel and sense the outline of it in the room with them what's on Mm -hmm. your mind with all these different events swirling and circling around our girl so first of all is she
0: in she's not in the tent when she's thinking about this she's outside and like realizes it's no she's outside in the tent which is a terrifying prospect Mm -hmm. first and foremost but I really appreciated throughout this entire scene that it felt like her mind was just very meandering and sort of listing through her different like thoughts. And you can almost feel her focus just snap to that, that mist wraith as soon as, or not mist wraith, the, uh, mist spirit. As soon as like she, as soon as it gets her attention, like it's just laser focus. And There's something about the way that it's narrated. I don't know what it is. It just feels like I, I get this a lot throughout this entire section of just kind of shifting in the way that a character is thinking to themselves as things are happening around them, being very distinct. And I'm not sure why or if it's something new or not, or if it's old and I'm just picking up on
1: it now, but it felt very easy to read. I don't know. It grabs you, right? And it I think it's mm-hmm. because of that change. There's there's a change in pace and tension here that I think really kind of grabs you out of these moments, right? We meander a little bit and have this very kind of like thought experimenty and then we we get grabbed by some like event in some moment or we we have like a, a carry I think I think another example of this happening a couple of times is with Breeze's sections throughout. Like whenever Breeze has exactly. a section, he's got a similar kind of meandery, 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 and then reaction. And it's it's this really says it too kind of,
0: mm-hmm. there's one
1: with says yeah so I, I totally i definitely understand what you're sensing and i i think that's a part of that is why i think this book isn't quite as well liked is because now we're now we're ramping up right we spent a lot of time in this middle kind of tone for a lot of the book where it was like things are happening and there's a lot going on but it's not quite as snappy and this is snappy so. okay i think we we might have talked about this before i
0: don't get that feeling and i mm-hmm. think it's just because of the format how we yeah. how we approach this book.
1: Don't get the sort of slog. that. People... Yeah, I think, I think that is partially format in the sense that you can only read so much. And so you're only getting there, so much. There are always things happening in those sections. So there's always something <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, I always bookend it, which is another reason that I think that people, you know, it's super easy to get, just become a really quick reader who like goes through and wants like the next big thing and to kind of lose the, lose the forest for the trees In in reading in enjoying a novel, which is actually this is a this is just a semi side tangent. This is why I've gone through or I'm going through Rhythm of War more slowly is because I want to enjoy it. It's the last of the Stormlight Archive books that's published, so I'm just taking my time. I raced through the I raced quote. It still took me two months to read them, read those three books, but like raced through them comparatively. I just decided to slow it down to enjoy this last one for sure. So. For exactly this reason. So, feel ya. Shortly thereafter, we get a really warm moment and kind of a profound comment about how Vin is feeling right now. To, to quote here, Vin nodded, but he probably couldn't see her. She knelt, looking at him as the sun rose behind her. She'd given herself to him, not just her body and not just her heart. She'd abandoned her rationalizations, given away her reservations, all for him. She could no longer afford to think that she wasn't worthy of him, no longer give herself the false comfort, of believing they couldn't ever be together. She'd never trusted anyone this much. Not Kelsier, not Sazed, not Reed. Reed. Elland had everything. That knowledge made her tremble inside. If she lost him, she would lose herself. So I believe that this has been true
0: for a long time. Maybe even since the point where she expressed her love of Ellen to Kelsier back in the previous book. It's this this relationship is something different than anything else that she's had any friendships any anything that we've seen so far and she's been personally wrestling with the identity of her, like her own personal identity and i don't know this bond has been there through through the entire thing and i think that if anything were to threaten it she would have sort of snapped to this realization earlier but it's good to see this really come into her forethought forethought and like realize for herself that she cares this much and is this invested in this relationship but i don't think it's technically a change in the relationship you know
1: yeah yeah no i i don't i think it's not i agree with you i think it's not a change in the relationship i just think it's a profound realization it's it's a it's a deeper understanding of what that relationship means to her and how important it is and I think that's been kind of what the whole Zane storyline was kind of playing at, right? Is like surface level relationship and ideas of, you know, being invested in someone else versus a much something that actually means something to you. And that's kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not really love triangle-y, but it is kind of what like love triangles get at in storytelling. Like the trope of them is the meaning of of a good relationship versus one that is not, you know, not a good relationship for you necessarily great person but not not one well not in zane's case but a lot of the time with the trope (laughs) you know it's kind of the idea so yeah i totally agree with you though i think that there were the seeds of this all the way back with kelsey i think that that's a great great call and i think we've only seen that deepen since the beginning of this book so true yeah it's it's great i but i i just like that paragraph is one of my my favorites from the section for sure probably from this part even i i just really really enjoy it front to back so spook makes an important odd for uh, oh my god spook, uh, makes for, an, ob, observation, yeah. spook makes an important observation about vin's change and also getting pretty vulnerable with us regarding his name and how he wishes he was kind of powerful like vin and how he feels weak and powerless i think that this is kind of an excellent moment because it highlights very differently how spook has been affected by his upbringing similarly we know that he was a child with a background closer to Finn's than anyone else is in the crew but unlike Vin, he wasn't liberated by his powers in the same way and feels powerless in the, this age of Mistborn's heroes and, and all the changes that are kind of around um, in the country. I just think that this is another point in which this character becomes so well-written and grounded yeah. in a fantastic way.
0: I can certainly see where he's coming from yeah. or like the idea of being kind of useless. It makes me wonder what he would have felt like if he was completely mundane. Like, if Mm. everything else was the same, he was still part of the crew, he was still, like, involved in all of this, but he didn't have, like, he wasn't a Tinai. I strangely think he'd have more self-confidence and, like, more of a sense of belonging and purpose within everything, and compared to where he is now, he has a power, but as has been pointed out, it's useful but redundant, ultimately, and... I don't know what does he actually bring to the table other, other than just kind of redundancy. So there's that. And yeah. but I think this is also a good point to to bring up what we had kind of glanced over last week because mm-hmm. I guess I can only speak for myself. I had completely like forgotten
1: how young he actually is. It had fallen out of the back of my brain um yeah. because I I was thinking about Hero of Ages and okay. like that. Anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's like 16, <laughs> right? He's a kid mm-hmm. still. And I think I mostly, like, I remember that he's about Vin's age. He's a couple years younger. But they're all going through something pretty crazy. And they have so much responsibility on them. Like, they're, they're central to a budding kingdom, which is not something that most kids go through. So I had, I had in my head that Vin was like, she already progressed to like mid twenties maybe. So I thought Spook was kind of around there too, but she's only like 18, 19 years old. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it really makes things feel different, you know, when, when thinking about Spook and what he's going through and how he's feeling.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree on the side of Spook because there's so much emotional maturity between, you know, even Vin and Spook, right? Because they are these, you know, Ska outcasts and everything else that's been going on with them in the background. So really kind of come to appreciate them in that way a little bit more. I did want to mention, because you brought it up, the idea of sort of if he didn't have a power, how would he feel? And I think he'd feel pretty similar to how Doxon does, right? Like, or he would he would be trying to find... I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I think that he would be trying to find his place in a different way, in a grounded way, in something that, you know, he feels like he can actually contribute to. He does have that sense. He personally, obviously, feels that sense of redundancy versus, versus Vin. And I think that's also why the relationship between... That is kind of, uh, not relationship, but rather friendship between... Ellen and spook is foundationally great because Ellen doesn't have anything and like feels but he is he is like a king but it's like well I made myself a king like I I had to study and I had to do these things and you know it's almost like spook has sort of the naivete of you know a 16 year old wanting to find themselves of course at 16 you feel you know those kind of yeah I don't know those feelings yeah
0: but there is something to be pointed out even in that explanation of ellen becoming king the only reason he had the opportunity to like study as much as he did and to be poised to take oh, yeah. up that mantle is because
1: of the very completely unfair upbringing that he had as opposed to spook totally true definitely an oversight but i i meant more in sort of the mm-hmm. you know that's a, that's yeah. a fair point though that is definitely an inequality between the two so, inequity. You know, and I, I think regarding Spook, I think it's great that we get, more, we get a little bit more on him later than like how he breaks. So I guess we'll talk about that then because I think that it, again, shows an important facet of his character that we'll, we'll talk about then. We cut back, though, to the crew and begin to witness the attack of the Colossus on Luthadel. Our prolonged siege is finally over and the fight against the Colossus has just begun. I really appreciate, as the battle begins, says its commentary on what they get. Yeah, and so they say, this is what we get, being ruled over by a god for a thousand years, a thousand years of peace. Tyrannical peace, but peace nonetheless. We don't have generals. We have men who know how to order a bath drawn. We don't have tacticians. We have bureaucrats. We don't have warriors. We have boys with sticks. And man, from there, the fighting really starts, and it is brutal. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this
0: quote, because... You brought up the quote before, but this one is my favorite of of the section. And it's it's one thing to think about how, like, thinking about that quote and sort of the position they're in, it's one thing to approach it when they're under threat. The city is being surrounded by these armies, and it's this overwhelming sense of unpreparedness. But to get that quote now, when the warriors are like, the warriors, which are just giant humanoid beasts that are perfectly equipped both physically and mentally to just slaughter everybody that's trying to defend the city. It makes this hit so much more like directly in my chest of like, holy shit, everything's going to topple. Like we just Mm -hmm. didn't, it's been a millennia of not being prepared for something like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I think if if there's one small critique on the colossus in general, it's that we didn't see something like this sooner. Like we saw we saw remnants of it, you know what I mean, but we weren't really exposed to the violence and so we didn't have we knew that it was going to be bad, but we didn't know how bad. It does make it hit more in this moment that it's like, oh, this is really fucking awful. But yeah, you're you're totally right and that is it is literally a millennia of unpreparedness.
0: Do you think part of that like I, I could see this going either way. If this was a decision, I'd say this is a decision that Branderson made, of do I include a foreboding scene, not foreboding,
1: earlier scene? I don't know
0: an an earlier scene. I guess that's a
1: a tease. You, I mean, it's yeah. a tease, right?
0: Of of like for the reader to understand what these coloss can do, or is it better to try to put the reader in the shoes of the the people of luthadel who probably don't actually know what they're up against to a certain extent and i guess as readers we're kind of left somewhere in the middle because mm-hmm. we have basically Sazed's knowledge of it of them and we have ellen's like first-hand account of going through the, but so that that's more than the, the than the uh city folk but less than like being fully exposed so, i don't mm-hmm.
1: know i i feel like thinking about this and, and, you know, we obviously, we can't change the book, so I'm not going to focus on trying to fix the book, right? But an adaptation is a place where you can fix kind of spots like this. In my head, what you would do is you would have Seizid on his way back from Luthadel travel through a city that was ravaged by the Coloss, and do like him imagining the interspersed cuts of violence. So like you would see him looking at like a, at a house that was burned out and see that moment where, you know, Coloss were cutting people down in front and where the bodies are strewn out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I think you would do to give you that tension because we didn't really know the threat that these things posed outside of an individual level, you know? Right. And even Mm -hmm. then, like not really. Yeah. Yeah. So again, yeah, small thing. I don't, I don't know what, what makes more sense in the book. This book is already long for time. According to Brandon, it was already one of those books where it's like, I promised a 600 page book and I delivered a 740 page book. (laughs) So Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. You know, I I can't blame him. He probably did have an earlier cut that was longer, and that included that. It's kind of the most authors cut about 20%. Like, you cut 20% out in edits of your story Mm -hmm. in the attempt to streamline things because you're probably being dumb and too slow, and you don't realize it until you're done. That's fair. So, yeah. I've cut somewhere in the realm of 30% out of that one book. So. (laughs) dumb and too slow is a very real feeling but yeah so in adaptation i feel like that's the change that i'd make because i think those flashes would work would work great as a as a source of uh tension we we of course we leave that and we cut back to ellen again this week's material i think more than any other one lends itself directly to adaptation because it does literally feel like camera cuts between scenes and moments in a very clean way we cut back to Ellen and Vin, and find the men that have been following them weren't Straff's scouts, but in fact a couple of soldiers and Ellen's friend Josties. Josties quickly explains that he was forced to abandon his Coloss army outside of Luthadel due to a supply cart fire that burned all of his coins for the Coloss. This angers Ellen, and he decapitates his old drinking buddy. This is a this is a weird moment um, for me as a reader, and I don't know how to perfectly think about it thematically. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are.
0: So my thoughts, oh, I've got a few different thoughts. First of all, as far as the decision that Jostys takes to basically abandon everything and just kind of let the Coloss go because, uh, whatever, makes him a bastard garbage human. Mm-hmm. Like, just a
1: garbage person. I think and, he was dead either way, you know? But it is, well, it is bad. That, it's worse. That's not the point. Right. The That's fact that he was doing in the first place was the problem.
0: Exactly. So, so he was—he knew from the jump that he was precariously like positioned as the leader of this army, and like he put himself in this shit show. He really, mm-hmm. really did. And he, at his core, based on like our conversations with like between Sazed and Josty's, we knew that he knew that too. He was trying to put on a face and pretend like he wasn't. But yeah. He knew that he was like really kind of on the razor's edge here. So, figuring that he can just kind of wash his hands of it and not take any responsibility for abandoning the army that he's very tenuously holding on to is the same as just letting them go attack and like giving mm-hmm. that order. Because ultimately, operatively, there's no difference. So, that brings me to my thoughts on Ellen and. I think that this is a very meaningful confirmation that Elend has kind of gone through a transformation into this capable leader and king able like his his comments prove that he's able to forgive like very compassionately on a personal level but won't let that persuade his decisions that have to be made on a diplomatic level and following through with the needs of his people so and I think it's very fair to say his people would would need justice in this moment because for all he knows Luthedel's gone based on this act like single <laughs> abandonment action.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. Like I and I think that you're entirely correct and you know it's it's one thing for this philosophical drinking buddy to have a conversation about potentially doing something like this. It is entirely another thing to go through with doing something like this and to have gone through this thought experiment of like, well, what if we like I'm controlling the Colossus with money as opposed to like just positing it and like having that conversation, which is what he previously really was with Ellen. you know, more of a they were friends for sure. But like it was it was more conceptual in the moment that they crossed that line. You know, it's it's a different different game based on the risk and the judgment, which is why I do I ultimately understand exactly why Ellen makes this decision and does the right thing, and even the soldiers agree because they understand. But I do think it's a it's a little bit at odds with the and this is good. this is good. i I mean this with all like I don't mean this is a bad thing. It's a little bit at odds with where he started, right? And this shows that that growth trajectory that he's been on over the course of the story to not being the straight up. Moral paladin, like bad people still deserve consequences, but it is a little judge dread of him. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is a little of one mind, not like a, yeah. I don't know. I, I just that. have that like one small thing. It's again, I, it's not, it's just like a character thing. Like,
0: no, I think I can agree with you on that. And I guess that brings up a question for me to you Do you think he actually forgave him on a personal level? Like,
1: I think he so. Does. I think yeah. so. Okay. I, I think, I think he meant it. I think he was sincere about it. It just gets me back to that. We we asked this question back when he first stabbed Josties before, right? Of mm. like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> and it, it gets back to that same question of like, what's going on with Ellen a little bit? You know, like he's clearly still juggling, juggling some command friendship barriers that he needs to figure out, which is also like his, his identity with like titling friends and like having them call him Lord or King back when he was before he was deposed and there's, there's still a lot of identity questions, I think, at this point. But I think that this is kind mm-hmm. of sealing in that identity to some degree that he associates with, I don't want to say king because he's not a king, but like his sort of authority? I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's That's the tough part is without the authority, what are you? You just, you're a vigilante. <laughs> yeah. Right now he but, is.
0: But he's also outside of, like, is there a governing body
1: right here anyway? I mean, I think he's still in the central dominance or the north dominance, so there is technically. But like, and no one's going to hold this accountable. No one but us would ask this question, right? But I do think it's kind of a little bit of vigilantism if we if we think about it for too long. I
0: mean, yeah if you if you really think about it, yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree with it though.
1: No. Again, yeah. I don't either. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't think that any of this is bad. It's just an interesting thing to ponder. We got some reactions. I actually thought that this happened in the Hero of Ages. I didn't think it happened right now. I remembered the scene entirely differently. And I got a post in the No PJ Sound this week about decapitating Jostys. And I was like, I thought that was in the beginning of the Hero of Ages. Oh. <laughs> like, nope. for some reason, it was just locked in my brain. That's not really a spoiler, but Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I like it, but to, to kind of cap that point, Ellen drives home something that we've been saying for many weeks and talking about in her own right, how both Ellen and Vin are tools, knives of their own, not for each other, but for the kingdom, and I think that this is that stake of identity and everything else that's been driven home since the beginning, talking about these, these two, I think, really being the heirs of the survivor, it says heir, but it's heirs, entirely, yeah, so I might I might be completely wrong on this.
0: Sure. But I I really like this commentary in general, but I'm curious where this came from from Ellen's perspective and in his point of view. Because that wording specifically is something that Vin has been wrestling with, and as far as I could tell, she hadn't like talked to Ellen about feeling like the knife. You know? So maybe I'm just reading into it too much, but that that felt like Vin's struggle and Vin's wrestle as opposed to Ellen's. So it, it felt weird to have him be the one to bring that up externally from from a conversation with Vin. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. The, the point still remains, but it just kind of tripped me up that that was the language that he used.
1: Yeah, it is... I was just double checking inside of the text because that's kind of the wonder of using uh, Kindle now um, to to do this kind of searching because I found holistically that not all sources are entirely true. So now I'm doing my own shit manually, folks at home. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that it is fascinating because this is an internal conversation that Ellen has had, or rather not Ellen, that Vin has had with Zane and it's been in her head. And so it is. It's. I think it speaks to the fact that Ellen was seeing Vin's pain for so long and like understanding how she felt about like having to be the assassin and the warrior and the defender and interpreting that just using the same language. And I feel like that's that <laughs> is a thematic thing more than it is a it's maybe the most unreal moment. Like it's maybe the most like written for TV moment, if that makes sense, where it's like, oh, yes, this is this is kind of tropey to refer to it in the same way that someone else did without saying it. But at the same time, I think Ellen has enough like emotional intelligence to end at this point to like come to this point he is a philosopher and, dude after all you know
0: and it's entirely possible that they had conversations on the road yeah the last that couple doesn't days. feel great about it though it you doesn't know? like that doesn't it doesn't yeah. feel good as yeah. a justification but i like yours better it's possible yeah that, that it's intuition and picking up on the vin's philosophy if you
1: well, because he was so good. If you if you rereading this book, I was I was keying into this. He was very good at reading Vin's emotions, but Vin was terrible at reading his emotions. Right, for the most part. There there's some exceptions Sometimes. there, yeah, where he was also bad too. So like, let, we can't holistically give him you know a full full credit there. But at the very least, we can say you know I think he's more intuitive emotionally and emotionally intelligent than Vin was to start. Vin was it's a lot more to question. And always has. So he's he's came from a sense of security, and she's come from insecurity her entire life. So our final conversation of this chapter is one that I'd hinted at a little bit earlier. It's the conversation surrounding Saezid's lie, that the Coloss would take the city, as we definitely know to be happening, and Vidin also comes to realize that the well isn't north and that their quest was intended to be fruitless, as spook uh, that clubs had told him. So this is this is kind of a fascinating moment to end the chapter on, and... Yeah, what do you think? I guess, I guess I have a grape with it.
0: I don't know why. Because she, she then like within this, like obviously she knows that the lie is happening or that she was lied to, but then she really pays attention and feels the beating from Luthadel and to the south. She's like, oh man, it's been it's been there the whole time. But I feel like we had explicit passages saying that she was following the beating northwards
1: i think that she thought that it was getting stronger and and for the record just to kind of clarify some thoughts so so here's why i also think that this chapter is brilliantly written is because as we head away from the beat vin starts getting better and like mentally healthier and like a lot of things improve for her as she goes away from the sound of the beating in the background. If you, if you look at that over like the last week or so, and as she, like, I I, noticeably, I noticed that this time, that's when she starts to actually have meandering thoughts again and like takes time to ponder a lot of things as opposed to being rushed between thing to thing to thing and feel like it's just pressure and stress building up. Um, So I think that that's why it falls into her rear view, so to speak. Like she, she like forgets about it and it's prophesied. And like Ellen says, there's no reason that it shouldn't be in the Terrace mountains. All the religious texts say this, everything everywhere says this, you know, everything that they have on it says that it's there. So it feels right. And she's like finally being able to sleep again soundly and like all these other signs that say that mm-hmm. you're going in the wrong direction, actually. She does not hear it in the other direction, per your point. She okay. she just feels like it's there. Gotcha. And then she stops paying attention to it because it gets lighter.
0: I just, for whatever reason, I felt like there was a comment that said she's she's following it north and... Maybe that's just
1: the wording and I read too much into the, into the word following. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think she wasn't following the beating so much as she was following the idea of where the beating came from, if that makes sense. Okay. Gotcha. Like where she assumed, like they all assumed it was there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Good to pick up on that sort of mental health, physical health have been improving as she gets. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that was a really big one on this read because I did. I don't think I caught that the first time. And I was like, wow, this is such a small thing, but it really changes as she leaves the, in a good way. And you can kind of see as she gets back, she gets more stressed. But that stress can also be attributed to the fact that her friends are in danger. So it's kind of – I'm, I'm of two minds on that as she heads actively back. Actively dying. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs>
1: there, there is I mean, that.
0: there's that. For sure. Um, I just want to find this. Sorry. Does it start with Vin's perspective? Where? Yeah. In the chapter, you mean? It starts with, 51 starts with Vin's perspective is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, here it is. She literally says the opposite. Yeah. She literally says the opposite, but it's not directional, which is weird. Just mm-hmm. in her, in her head. Okay. Yeah. She literally says, shouldn't the thumping be getting louder, not softer? I don't know why I just completely like
1: flipped that in my head or ignored that. I don't think it was because of this week's reading. I think it was because of last week's when they're heading out of the city because that's kind of the indication is that it's like, okay, to follow the thumping, but it's not really following because she doesn't understand the directionality of it yet. So okay. I think that's why, because that there's an sense. assumption on the mapping there more than anything else. Okay. I super yep. I super get where you're coming from because I think that is the intentional mislead, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Glad we uh, ironed that
0: out a little bit.
1: Yeah, no worries. No worries. Me too. With that, we move into chapter 52, our second chapter of the week. We have our logbook here to start. My pleas, my teachings, my objections, and even my treasons were all ineffectual. Alendi has other counselors now, ones who tell him what he wants to hear. This one's weird to me. It's near the end here, man. I, and I know we aren't near the end of the, the week yet with logbooks, and maybe we can talk about this in culmination here. Um, but we are so near the end of the book. I'm kind of curious where your head's at with the logbooks. I'm still, I
0: don't know if it's two different people, but it still feels like two separate texts Sure, that we're reading. I could believe that it's two separate people entirely because we get simultaneously information about Quan sort of creating this subversion with Rashik in on one side of things. And on this, it's straight up treason for the sake of trying to like get Elendi to stop. So maybe it's different parts of, I don't know, this feels like somebody on the outside of that plan, seeing Rashik and the, the other terraceman with Elendi going forward and like trying to put a stop to it here, like all the while Quan is the one that like set it up to go Mm -hmm. there. So that's my assumption is that it's two separate texts by two separate authors and they're
1: all just kind of jumbled together. Okay. And I mean. That is an interesting thought and one we're still kind of waiting for an answer on. But And again, I don't think that this is necessarily a full-on prediction or anything. It's just like we're almost at the end of the book and there's still so many questions around what exactly Quan's getting at. Right. Yeah. I really think as we get into this chapter now, uh, Breeze is the highlight of this week for me um, in a bunch of different ways. I think that he is the most intentionally grounded and well-written character as we move through this bit. And it makes me very glad when we get to this section that we've gotten Breeze's perspective here because we can kind of get a normal feel for how he is and really the impacts that this combat is having on him. But I think that his perspective is just so strong and strongly written that I really enjoyed immensely. We join him soothing away the fears and anxieties of the troops around him at Zinc Gate. We share a quick moment here with Clubs as well, speaking about his time as a warrior in the South under the Lord Ruler and how they often won their conflicts because of the Coloss. I want to make mention of this because I think It feeds back into the bit that we were talking about last week with this man being a craftsman. Now we kind of have this fuller picture that he left his sort of warrior profession to become a craftsman. It's like that coming home from war and like being well revered. And you can kind of get an understanding of how he got to the station that he did because of the war experience. And also like why he prefers that and why he wanted to be that life and why he is this jaded kind of man and character. I don't know. And and that he like can't escape it. I just love Clubs' arc so much. And, you know, it's unfortunate, of course, that that ends this week, but I, I think that it is. A, yeah. What do you think? Yeah.
0: I, I think you covered kind of my feelings on that pretty That's well fair. just in going through that, but kind of on a higher level, I think Clubs and Breeze, both independently and together, have such strong presences and personalities in this section of the book i feel like without saying the character names we could tell like it, it's so distinct that we'd be able to tell whose perspective we're in just from just from the sort of personality being portrayed and i feel like this would make an amazing perspective shift in any sort of adaptation just going to to Bree specifically because that's what we get in the book but Dealing with these two is so distinct and unique and it, it would make a very easy transition from a different character's point of view. Much in the way that like Game of Thrones has very distinct, separate personalities in every single one of the perspectives that they follow. This lends itself to it perfectly.
1: This is like a C's plot that plays like a B plot. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it- Typically, you've got your A, B, C plot, right? So our B plot is really it. Our A plot is Ellen Vin. So, yeah, this is yeah. like a perfect C plot that really plays as strong as a B plot does. So, yeah, totally. I totally agree with you. Yeah. It would definitely, definitely work as a fantastic cut around inside of an adaptation. And it's it's a great portrayal because it feels like more, even though, you know, we still have two or Mistings here, it does feel like they have... um like, they're limited, and so it gives a varied perspective. Because they, you know, only have their one. It's not quite every man, but it's as close as we can kind of get, for the most part. So, cool. Then, of course, after the last chapter in the Betrayal by Spook and the Coward commentary, I can't believe, did we not talk about that? I, I just want to briefly mention, Spook's, Spook being so down on himself there is kind of painful to read, but at the same, he's not. he's not really a coward, he was just doing... What he was told he's a sixteen year old, you know, like I feel bad. I don't for him. think I blame him in the slightest. And no. I don't think Vin does either. No, no, I, I just mean his internalized blame. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's that's what I think is wrong. I think ultimately what was he gonna like again, sixteen year old, you have to you have to give him a pass. Getting, getting back to this chapter, though, the reason that that brought it up up into my mind, uh, Vin is Peter dragging her way across the countryside, and I'm just struck by the emotionality she feels for her friends that she knows are going to die. She was under the impression that she was traveling north to save her friends with whatever power she could find at the well. And man, this is just a tough spot for her to be in. Her, like, crying and everything else was just a, a gut punch. She is just racked with Stress, she's
0: frantic, she's exhausted, but she never stops being so, like, laser-focused and driven. It it makes for a really, really fun read throughout the entire thing. And ultimately, like, there's not action happening here. It's just her running, and it's still
1: exciting to read. Yeah, the pace is somehow still electric, and you're just like—because it's, it's frantic, like you're saying. Like, it's it's very— It's got that energy about it. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I feel that as well. And so we get, we get that Peter drag, which is fun. And I just want to mention this very briefly that there's that brief conversation. So again, this part is structured like a movie or a TV show in the way that it kind of like cuts back and forth. Right. So we jump again to clubs and breeze for like two pages or something like that. And you know, it's, it's a cut back to how did we get here? And there's just that nice little joke that we get from clubs, which ends up being, you know, kind of our last dash of, of humor that we get from him is uh guess we're just idiots. And then they're talking about Kelsier and it's like he turned us into idiots who would stand at the front of a doomed army. And Club says that bastard. And <laughs> you know, it's a it's a great moment to go go out on right when the gates break. It feels like Helm's Deep has just erupted and we had our our last our last bit of humor before the world ends.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that felt good.
1: Yeah, it's just a small thing, but it's, you know, it's just a nice, it's a good send off at the very least. And we've spent a lot of time with clubs over the last week. And, you know, obviously I didn't make a big deal out of it because I knew that he was going to die. But like, yeah, yep. So we cut to Sazed, who really doesn't believe that he's got the uh, makeup to be leading the gate under a siege and that he can't really do it himself and is seeking new leadership in the place of the the commander slash just nobleman who was assigned to his gate um you know beads or beadies is in charge of the soldiers and however he then goes and leaves to deal with a very different problem that of the civilians that have gathered to, to be saved by the lady heir this is kind of a this is fascinating for three dozen reasons to me one of which is like sazed pushing back against someone else's faith what would you think about the situation at the gate
0: that's that last point you made, the idea that he's pushing against someone else's faith, is such a strange but profound point, I think. And there are a couple ways that I view that. One, I think we talked about it last week, that Sazed has already kind of begun an internal spiral and existential crisis regarding his religions. And another is that this, this religion is new. Entirely, and he hasn't actually studied it. So, well, he hasn't studied it because there's not really anything to study. At yeah. Point. So maybe it doesn't hold the same level of legitimacy in his own mind. And I think three, as another option, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is sort of how this could be entirely tied to the prophecy. And the terrorist religion that would point towards vin being the hero of ages and says it being the announcer and him kind of pushing against that idea and anything pointing to that so that's ultimately that's my take on it is that this is more tied to the terrorist prophecies than it is to a unique and new religion whether or not the the members of this religion know it or not, I think this is the same thing popping up again and says it is fighting against it because it's revolving around him.
1: And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that that is a good, the third one is a great, and the other two also make sense as, as like rationales. There's there's a number of things that I think are rolling around the scene in a bunch of different contexts. And I think that that is your third rationale there is the one that I, I generally think of the most is that closeness to the terrorist faith. The other thing that I would add on or tag into that is this idea that like, and this isn't necessarily new to the world of Scodriel entirely because the Lord Ruler was alive and was like a living God to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so these people are used to worshiping a living God and are okay with that. But in all of these other faiths that it has, there's not like none of them, none of those gods are like corporeal in the same kind of way, you know? And so it's a very different ball game. And he's like, she's just my friend. I like tell her how to live her life sometimes. Like, and that just doesn't feel that like it's, it's hard for him to like even buy into that idea because they have faith in something that he talks to, but then that feeds back into the terrace faith idea. And like this idea of being the announcer and this sort of person that leads to, you know, the hero of ages.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, Oh man, I was going to bring something else up. Oh, I think one thing to to make note of regarding the Lord ruler and being a living God, that was kind of illusion. Like he, he was the cornerstone of this religion that he built himself based on powers that he and nobody else possessed because not because he was actually like divine, but because he was unique, you know? And he Mm -hmm. was able to kind of trick everybody into thinking that he was divine. Right.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a fair point as well. I guess I was just, I was trying to get to get to the point of like the Mm -hmm. idea that there was a living, living God, you know, at the point. Um, So faith was easier because it was real and corporeal, you know, Mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough, this is a tough thing to parse here as to why like Sazed is is feeling this way. And like, how even to deal with a real representation of like your god and saving you we're gonna get into this later when vin actually shows up because that's when like this really kind of comes to a head i think but we've laid the groundwork here <laughs> yeah <laughs> to have that conversation so of course before we can complete the argument that's happening there between the people a coloss makes its way up and over the wall throwing beads over its shoulder like a child done with playing with a toy And then the fighting really begins. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. What
0: a, just an intense way to start a fight. Just getting ripped into combat. I don't know, man. I'd, I'd rather wade into the, into the shallow end a little bit more. I think. (laughs) Yeah, but just give me the kiddie pool for like 10 minutes. Then I'll jump in the deep end. (laughs) But. I don't know, at least let me get my like feet wet before we do laps, you know, like, yeah. So that said, actually during swim practice and stuff, I, my favorite thing to do was just jump in because I was never going to like, I was just going to complain if I slowly
1: got into the water, you know, it's true. It's true. Which, <laughs> you know, is one, of it can also starting a fight like this and to your point on swimming, like. Sometimes jumping in is just the best solution all around for every yeah. every way, shape, and form. It gets you going faster, you get acclimated faster, everything changes. It's also the most realistic. Like that's true. In the case of the story. Like you're not gonna get you're not gonna get your perfect point out in real life before you have to go do something or like make a change. Conversation and everything else just doesn't work that way. Right. So intensity
0: yeah. abound.
1: Right. Right. And, wow, it is crazy. I, man, I'm not going to lie. I, when I was reading this, totally the first thing I thought of was that metaphor of, like, a child throwing a toy. And I was like, it's, a, but originally I wrote Barbie, like, throwing a Barbie over the shoulder. Because that's exactly what I imagined. Just, like, a 10-foot person grabbing a man and just going, whoop. And, like, ditching the Barbie into the people, into the coloss to become, like, a meat for the kolos. Yeah. Becoming a meat. Becoming a meat. I mean, it it's not it's not that dramatic. It no, is dramatic.
0: Well, but it's like me grabbing a toddler. And then like <laughs> flinging you know? them. It's like me just flinging a toddler over my shoulder. Yeah. Which you know is a horrifying prospect and I'd be able to do it pretty easily, but it's not that easy, you know? Like there yeah. there's some effort that would go into that. It's fair. I disclaimer I do not endorse in any way
1: throwing toddlers over shoulders. I feel like that covers me legally, right? Yes, it does. The only way that you can do this (laughs) is if you preface it with sack of potatoes and you don't let go. (laughs) And you like throw them up and onto shoulder, not over shoulder. It's the key clarification. That's what I meant. Oh, sack of potatoes? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. You're legally absolved, I think, of any potential wrongdoing. (laughs) Potential? I, yeah, you know, you're right. Not I'm even been. close. All right, so as the story does, it cuts around a bunch and we cut over to Vin stopping in a small village meeting a group of Ska who have taken up residence in a nobleman's house. Vin is out of pewter for the pewter drag on her way there and she comes to the realization that, you know, she doesn't have enough and that she wouldn't be able to get enough in a reasonable amount of time. She comes up with a different solution, something closer to the spike wave before using rotate a rotating group of horseshoes basically to create a mobile spikeway for herself and this is so fucking cool
0: it's super cool it was it was a fun like just the entire process of her like trying and kind of figuring it out and getting her groove a little bit was satisfying very satisfying to read but as far as this section goes i talked about it a, a little bit in the discord when I was reading through this the first time. And how do you imagine her taking off initially? Like, she's talking to the Ska, and she's like, she confirms that she is her, and then, like, bounds away. But, like, how do you imagine, you, Crossland, how do you imagine her, like,
1: taking flight? So for me, when it comes to this in particular, I imagine her dropping the horseshoe and going straight up, and then actually throwing a horseshoe backwards at an angle and pushing for that to start her momentum forward, if that makes sense. So she okay. pushes at an angle to, like, get herself launched because, like, the tip of the horseshoe would hit the ground first. Like, and then so that would be her forward momentum. And then she just kind of continued building on that as she went. That was my thought. But I meant more body posture. You? But um, it does oh, say I, oh. that
0: she, she goes up and, and forward. Yes, yes. Um, Right. So, like, she initially just goes straight forward. And based on the mechanics of what we know about steel pushing, it goes straight out from her center of mass. Mm -hmm. And, like, it affects her that way. So, I like to imagine, I don't think this is how she does it. I think she, like, braces herself and, like, gets into position and, like, kind of looks like she's flying or jumping or something. But I like to imagine it's, like, rubber banding in in a video game where she's like talking and then just, boop, just just stays in the exact same posture and just
1: slides forward like into the posing right. around basically but not quite a t-pose you know yeah no that's a, that's a fair point i i totally totally agree with you now that you say that it's definitely got to be like she just goes right because you can imagine like you can also imagine the flourish of like her like crouching and then jumping to like take off and like doing something fancy and like spinning and getting the tassels going. And, yeah. you know, I don't know, getting getting fancy with it. But I like to think like you think where it's just like in kitten cannon launched out at an angle, <laughs> like just gone. <laughs> but then then after that, she's like actively
0: almost like yeah climbing a ladder because she's like throwing horseshoes and catching horseshoes. Throughout the entire thing. So, like, mm-hmm. she's, she's doggy paddling through the
1: sky for the rest of the time? Kinda. <laughs> or swimming? It's not a bad way of putting it. Yeah. I can't imagine anything else now. But, like, standing. You know? Like, treading water badly. <laughs> yeah. With your arms. Her legs are fine. But, you know, treading water badly is when you actually can't tread water. I'm just imagining, like, not doing circle arms. You know? Like, doing, I don't know, fucking forward-backward for some reason. Oh,
0: I actually, I wonder if she'd have to go backwards. Why? Because the horseshoes are coming at her center of mass. So for her to catch it,
1: she has to be in front of it. Couldn't she have it behind her back and, like, catch it?
0: Yeah, how's she going to throw it behind her back? <laughs> <laughs> like this? Like... Oh, wait, she's not I throwing don't... anyway. She's, she's. Yeah, she's not. She's just pushing. dropping, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, she doesn't have to actually, like, do anything super intense. Yeah, I suppose so. For for those of you at home, I had to stand up to imitate <laughs> <laughs> the way that I thought that this was going. She could hypothetically
0: T pose across the entire continent if she wanted to.
1: Yeah, yeah, she could totally. Ugh, you haven't seen Raised by Wolves, never mind. One of the char- one of the big scary robots, like T pose flies, kind of like like a like, but it's more like a Y pose, I guess, kind of like a low Y as opposed mm-hmm. to like up high. It's down beneath, more like repulsors, you know, like Iron Man style repulsors, but like not yeah. actually yeah engines anyway yeah
0: yeah no she could I, totally do that yeah she could do that yeah okay. i just
1: i'd like to see that adapted
0: right how does that because and I, well i i think they'd probably go with some sort of flourish that makes it look more like pulling like more like pulling it towards her hand instead of towards the center of her body because that just makes it makes the motion easier to do you know
1: I think that this is so grounded, though, in physics that they would have a tough time not, They'd have to. not following through and making it real. Like, that would be, I think that would be a really big sticking point for Brandon because he wants everything to be so well grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. In a lot of this. So, God, I just thought about something else, cosmic related, and now I'm not going to be able to get to that on my head. I need to talk to someone about that later. Okay, fuck. Thinking about adaptations. With that, we go into chapter 53. So we start off with our logbook here. I have a young nephew, one Rashik. He hates all of Clannium with the passion of envious youth. He hates Alendi even more acutely, though the two have never met. For Rashik feels betrayed that one of our oppressors should have been chosen as the hero of ages. So isn't this a stark difference in
0: tone from the previous one? You don't have to answer that. I mean, it is. <laughs> it just, it feels like a different person entirely. Okay. Yeah. But gives some more perspective on Rashik and makes me feel like he was maybe even the instigator of this plan as opposed to Quan putting him up to it. I don't know. He's poised to be kind of the foil to this whole thing from the jump. Yeah, no worries
1: yeah yeah no i i totally and this is just a in connection to the text itself i was just curious about something yeah i i think that there is something to be said about the tonality here and i do understand the concern yeah interesting so like the yeah finger twirling mustache twirling <laughs> levels of of intrigue here chapter tw- 53 in general is chock full of frenetic injury energy and brilliant cuts between perspectives um So lots of this is going to I'm probably going to say cut to cut to cut to a lot because we move around through a lot of perspectives pretty quickly here to kind of see the impact of the battle on each of these people. But with that, we start quickly on Straff. We get like a page, page and a half with Straff. Straff thinks he's figured out the drug combination that he was hooked on, which is that of a leaf uh, that had been kind of his the the drug that he knew is very harmful. And so he's going to have to slowly wean himself off of it. He's been chewing on the leaves to keep himself upright. We're also introduced formally to Gennaro, of whom was that general that we talked about last week that he had previously assumed would usurp, usurp his power when he knew Zane was gone. I was really expecting there to be some sort
0: of resolution much like what we, what he was expecting, Gennaro, of kind of him requiring someone to take care of him and help him and like follow through with the decisions that he makes and eventually that coming back to bite him and for the guy to just kind of off him, take, take the position, but kind of toy with him first and put himself into an even more advantageous position before killing Straff. But nope, he's standing. He's, he's not fine, but he's more or less all right. <laughs> you know, He's not yeah. on death's door
1: anymore for now. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Not at all. He's doing okay. So I felt I... like that
0: would have been a poetic way to go. You know, considering that set is wheelchair bound to have like, but, but is still able to effectively lead mm-hmm. and to see Straff, it would have been poetic for Straff to go into a similar position and be completely ineffective at leading because of it. Like, I feel yeah, like that yeah. would have been a cool positioning.
1: It would, it would highlight their the, the, yes, I, I like that idea. I like that idea because it is. It is anti, you know, ableist in its own right. You, you can kind of, you can see that parallel happening with sort of the way that he's being debilitated, right, mm-hmm. from from the previous chapter. But that said, Straff doesn't resolve this week, so, you know, there's yeah. something left there. But I, I agree with you. I think it would have been a nice parallel to see between the two characters, right, like to, to show Set as this. Set is such a hard character to nail at this point, right, because he is... Mm-hmm. Kind of a good guy. He's kind of a bastard, but like, you know, he's got good intentions. I, I think we'll be able to talk more about that when we get in into this a little yeah, bit. But I yeah. So too. I, I agree with you, I think, on Straff. And I think this is really just to show how much of a diabolical bastard he is, especially when comparing against General, of whom seems to be a reasonable, a yeah. reasonable general. He's like, fine, you let the Colossus attack, you let him do the thing. Now we should go, which happens a couple of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so we, we cut from there over to the fight for Luthadel from Sazed's perspective and I, I think that it's an absolutely wild shift as we get to see the Ferrochemist wield his powers for the offensive, squeezing and breaking a Colossus' neck and throwing his literal weight around as he presses shut the door in the hopes of buying his men more time man, it is so cool to see Sazed like using all of these abilities and kind of like hulking out a little bit, well oh, you say hulk but um, <laughs> it's it's just from from Branderson. It's excellent as far as description goes inside of these moments between the the bodies, the blood, the snow, and the ash mixing on all sides. The darker blood versus the more crimson, like the crimson red versus the other. It's just all good. It's I, yeah. This is. I haven't talked yeah. enough about Brandon's descriptive language this week because there are a number of moments where he just paints scenes perfectly with the ash and snow falling and blending together. I think he even in the last chapter it was like black moss on trees or something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway.
0: Yeah. I I appreciate that you used the term hulk that he hulked out because that is very much the imagery that was evoked for me during this section. Just physically obviously he swells and he becomes this fighting machine, but also sort of intellectually like I talked about before there's there's a shift specifically with Caesar. This is that shift where he is so focused on being this big burly fightin' dude that his intelligence seems to completely get pushed to the wayside as well like he he seems to be acting so much more instinctively and carnally as opposed to the very careful methodical says it that we've known just with muscles you know yeah yeah so,
1: I, and i think that comes from a lack of experience you know like there's there's a lot of different things it's like he's just he's literally throwing himself around as best he can you know mm-hmm. and there is something there is something very instinctive there about fighting for everyone's survival. And he's shocked that he's doing so well, too. That's kind of the other that's thing true. in the end, you know, when he throws his weight against the door and they're able to shut it with the with the brick and give themselves some time. And then they cut back and like they he like steps away and has that brief conversation Then the walls breaking again behind him. And you're like, fuck, you just wanted him to get like a little bit of a break. You know,
0: <laughs> I'll, that's everybody in this section, though. Mm-hmm. We want yeah. Vin to get a little bit of a break. We want Sazan too. we want well clubs too. Clubs and Breeze, yeah. Speaking nobody gets of, a break.
1: <laughs> yeah. Nobody gets a break. Speaking you want of us though, to get a break. <laughs> I, I need a break. <laughs> but Clubs and Breeze flee their position at Zinkgate and pull with them as many troops as they possibly can, hoping to rally at Keep Lacal, where Lord Penrod is. The Coloss run through the street and cut them off on the front side as well as behind. Breeze tries to shout to warn Clubs and the troops of the approaching Colossus from behind, but as he turns, he sees Clubs get struck down, cleaved in half by one of the beasts, first losing his arm and then through him, and Breeze flees into the building, man. And this is seriously brutal, the way that Breeze just goes from this sort of... uh, Mocking, funny guy, rich guy. Like, not not super funny. He's not like a Deadpool-type humor, but, you know, he's got kind of that that uh, uppity attitude about him. And mm-hmm. to see that just, like, melt here as he loses his closest friend over the course of this novel is just horrifying. Yeah. Almost his only friend.
0: Pretty much. Know? Yeah. So, it was tough. Very tough to read that. And that's that's an understatement, I feel like, especially because... It's so rare I, in the last several books that we've read that we get an actual like front to back death scene. There's oftentimes a lot left to the imagination. They're sometimes shrouded because they're not actually dead. More often than not, I don't, I don't know. It, it was tough to see like a straight up one of our
1: one of our guys no longer a person, and in kind of an eye blink moment, you know, like the mm-hmm. last time that something. Happened this quickly was Kelsier to some degree, right? Yeah, Kelsier got a little bit more fanfare, but yeah, I Did definitely. Did we actually see him fully die though? Yeah, we saw him on the spike dead or on the spears dead. He for oh, yeah. sure died. Yeah, yeah, yep. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I just this one this one hurts. You know, I, I don't does. know. And obviously, we we anything else on the the club's breeze moment that you wanted to say here?
0: No, I think you covered it, especially with the friendship, yeah, between the two of them makes it hurt that much more
1: yeah the only other thing that i can think of with breeze is to watch him kind of break and crumble this week is really really hard because he is he always has been a man of confidence that's that's his entire his thing he is almost the literal con man of the whole you know crew very much so yeah yeah so it's kind of crazy to see him break that way so then we move to Doxon, who has a moment of panic as he knows that he's kind of about to die writing down and kind of doing everything he can before he meets a similar end to that of clubs, he doesn't quite die without fighting. At the very least, he does pick up his sword and swing it back, and the colossus catches it in its palm, cuts it just barely, and then his the the haft of the other sword comes down on his head, and left in black, just that that brutal cut where it's like, and then all went black, terrifying. Yeah, it's I like to it's see a POV cut off.
0: Yeah, but. It still leaves it open to not actually being dead, especially when paired with later on we get Sezid talking about how, he, like, his knowledge of Doxin's death is secondhand, as opposed to Club's. So, like, there there are several seeds of doubt for Doxon. So I'm going to make my prediction that he's not actually dead. But don't you feel like that would
1: feel really cheap with everything yeah. that happens this week? Yes. Do you think that Brandon would do us dirty that way?
0: Yes. Especially the juxtaposition, okay. because we get we get a very, very clear death from clubs, and mm-hmm. this one is with multiple
1: lines kind of shrouded in a little bit of uncertainty. Okay. All right. I'll take an easy prediction. That's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm just giving you shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Fair, fair point. Yeah, I, I mean... A number of the scribes do survive there. That's kind of the, the note that you're talking on and pulling on from later when we when we get to Saisid and kind of the how's everyone doing at the end of this. Yeah. So we do know that some survived. So there's that <laughs> question. But one of the scribes says that they definitely saw him cut down. Yes. So that comment also,
0: because it doesn't, there's no confirmation of death in any of it.
1: Yeah, because... I mean, today's it has a more important thing to go find, which we'll we'll talk about when we get there. But we cut from there, of course, you know, inside of this moment of combat, we we cut to Alrian and Set sitting and watching conflict from a distant Western hill. I appreciate that in this very brief flash that we get from them, Set has a profound quote that I really think shows the value that he placed on the crew inside of that city after he like met and got to know them and what they had done to, you know, try to prop up what they had at the time. Alrian, you know, it says something about i thought you were like were a good man and everything else and he says the good men are all dead Arianne. they died in that city
0: yeah this parrots exactly what he was talking about before with Ellen about mm-hmm. being a good man and how that doesn't necessarily make you a good leader and he was pretty adamant from from that point that he wasn't in that camp that he would be a good leader because he's not a good man which right. is a, it, it's a strange take to to hold but makes total sense in the totality of his character you know so it's weirdly touching for him to say that like this is a strangely touching moment i think in my head
1: yeah it is a very it's a very touching moment it's it's kind of a a thematic irony to some degree right that you know this is sort of the the good guys losing in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways and it is literally the good guys losing because they aren't they don't even even in a war that you you come out with some people alive you still lost because you you lost people along the way and everything else so even in when we end this week with the perception of Finn being able to take the colossus of the city it's still like not a not really a a swashbuckling victory you know like right. a cheery cheery situation that we're going to find ourselves on on the other side of this so we move back to Sazed with a t- with a towering 12 foot colossus looming over him intimidating as all get out he fears the end of his life, accepts it, and focuses on the beauty of the world around him before a glint catches his eye in the red sun and a coin finds its mark in the back of a colossus's skull. Vin has returned. She jumps down, swinging the gate around like a giant mace. She clears the courtyard in a single swing of the colossus. Seizid quickly turns and gets the civilian out of there. I, I just, re- I really love this scene from an action perspective. There's also definitely something here to say about faith and kind of the lack thereof of the civilians that we discussed earlier, and lack thereof meaning on Sazed's part and sort of that conversation. Obviously, as I kind of said earlier, when your gods are physical, corporeal beings, it's a very different ball game to to be playing with. Because are you placing, is it personal faith on the way that you think the people behave, or is it actually like a religious, you know what I mean? Like it's it's a little. Yeah. It, it almost feels weird to call it like a religion because if a if a person is alive and it's around a person, it feels more like a cult to me in the way that those typically are. But they're not really cultists because it's not a cult would imply some negative connotation from Vin's part. Cult doesn't you know what I mean? imply negative, technically. I uh, well in, okay.
0: in modern usage, it does, but that's exactly the sort yeah. of distinction is that sure. a cult is a religion with a living deity.
1: And I, I think the other part... Okay, that's a fair point. I think the other part, though, that... Like she doesn't participate in it, you know what I mean? Like she's not, mm. yeah, she's not really yeah. a participant in. That's the other that's, distinction that I think makes it less so cult like. You know, changes yeah. things. Yeah, that was that was where I, like my brain went. So you mm-hmm. could call like the Lord Ruler's religion to the point of what we were talking about before more cult-like, and this is more of a cult yeah. around someone. Yeah,
0: and I, I don't think that's like a scholarly fast distinction, but that's yeah, kind of the typical distinction. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think there's. There's a lot to be said about her return being in line with exactly what these people are 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 expecting, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it still points towards the prophecy and the terrorist religion. But I don't. It's tough for me to like divorce my train of thought from that sort of idea. I don't know.
1: Yeah i I agree with you, and I think I think we did hit on this a lot earlier, and so that makes it kind of easier to at this point, you know, kind of, kind of like roll off of it, because I think we talked about a lot of this, but it does, there's something that's like clawing at me here. That's hard to, hard to figure out because, and I think, I think some of it is that distinction between like a religion cult and whatever maybe actually exists, like whatever maybe the actual scholarly term is for people. Yeah. I think it's only, it's something that's so poorly defined in my brain because I don't know of any examples where someone is worshiped as reverently as a God would be but they aren't actively partaking in it themselves, if that makes sense. Like, they aren't taking advantage of it in some way. I think that's my, you know, issue. The closest you mm-hmm. get is, like, a politician. <laughs> yeah. But even then, they're, they're kind of cults of personality a lot of the time. So, that's mm. sort of reverence. I don't know. Yeah.
0: But at a, at a certain point, Bin does participate. Like, she fought against yeah. it, but she's
1: starting to lean in a little bit. That's fair. She's not completely absolved of anything. A fair point she's not really taking there's no taking advantage of it she's not you know using it for any sort of malintent either but she does kind of lean in a little bit into using it to at the very least to swage fears i don't know it's it's tough it's tough to parse exactly what what what's being uh, swung for here philosophically but i agree so moving on from that we kind of end this did you have any thoughts on the combat though with her vin i know we moved into the philosophy did you want to talk about the
0: uh, she doesn't get into the actual like control of the Colossus Ko- here does she Yeah. No 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 She's no, just kind of fighting. Yeah she's just swinging like, around fighting Yeah she's fucking wild man
1: wrecking ball There's more there's
0: more fights to come so we'll we'll get into that because I want to talk a little bit about the the control aspect but I think I'll still touch
1: on yeah. the actual physical combat part I, I really appreciated seeing Vin fight from Caesar's perspective, from someone else's perspective again. Mm-hmm. I think the last time that did this even happen when Ellen when they were in the in the castle when I don't think so because that was all Vin's perspective, right? That was all Vin's perspective. Yeah, yeah, so this is kind of for the first time in a while this is the first time we've had an outside perspective watching a Mistborn really kind of go at it and especially outside from Vin. I mean, we've seen Kelsier, that was my first thought. Okay. Like and that's why I said Mistborn. I I cannot fully parse if I remember. I don't think anyone else did.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i guess we get waylon or whatever his name is oh yeah roof <laughs> yeah Waylon. Well
1: yeah you're right yeah we do we do kind of get some of that from him so that's a fair point Which, yeah he survived right you yeah, know i think he i think he lived because he was hidden under the pile of bodies new
0: protagonist
1: i mean could be holds a secret vendetta assassin gonna get gonna get vin or ellen Glad you dived out of that because I was not ready to maintain that uh, prediction <laughs> on the bottom of the chart and like try to even, even facilitate the idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So with that, to end the chapter, we move back to Breeze, who sat in that dilapidated building, fearing for his life, at, and accidentally and coincidentally soothing everyone outside probably in an attempt to make himself feel better cuz he was trying to just like figure out you know i this gets so complicated with his emotions and maybe it's also that the soldiers may have just had a perspective of him doing that from inside of the building like there's so many questions that surround this moment and i i just this one hurts in a lot of different ways we find ham of course still be alive and well and our fragmented crew makes their way stumbling through the streets over to keep hasting yeah, obviously, great to see Ham up and about. We get some confirmation
0: there, which is nice. But I absolutely adore the fact that Breeze's subconscious goes straight to soothing other. People. I think it it creates oh, it's this totally, yeah incredible depth of character for him, and really proves that a lot of his gruff and I don't think gruff is right, but sort of you even uppity. just say his exterior. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was his saying. Exterior uppity. in right. general is entirely a facade like he is he is a very caring person to his core and really really cool
1: and i i think that's something that was was nicely highlighted earlier so i realized that i just said that it's ambiguous i actually don't think it's ambiguous i think that it did happen per exactly what you're saying because he said that he had a hard time turning it off earlier in the first time we were in his perspective and so that's part of the reason that clubs was such a good friend to him is because he knew that he wasn't subconsciously soothing. And I think, yeah, I think to your point, it is. It definitely speaks to a level of character with him that is fantastic, mm-hmm. and loving and caring regardless of humanity in general. And you can see why why Kelsier would latch into him as a as a good member of the crew at yeah. the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, cool. Almost worth losing clubs over it. Like, I think that it, oh, it oh from the original that- crew. Yep. Yeah, Kelsier would have chosen Breeze over clubs. Mm -hmm. Wanted clubs in it, obviously, but could not replace. Was willing to take the bet to let clubs walk. Yeah, over having Breeze in the crew.
1: Yeah, great point. Okay, with that we move into our last chapter of the week, Chapter Fifty Four. Our logbook here at the very top says Alendi will need guides to the Terrace Mountains. I've charged Rashik with making certain that he and his trusted friends are chosen as those guides. I don't know what to make of this. Because I'm starting to like,
0: I'm, this makes me almost doubt, or it doesn't make me doubt my previous like thoughts about it being two different people in two different logbooks, but I could see potentially Quan knowing that Alendi was kind of in disagreement with Quan and kind of squabbling a little bit and they were kind of at odds. For him to be publicly decrying the people that he was choosing as his guides... Almost in a like sense of res- reverse psychology, trying to like ensure that Alendi <laughs> actually picks it because he thinks it's what Quan doesn't want. Like, I could see that being something, and this is ju- th- that passage is just kind of cherry-picked out of like a, a quote section of
1: a logbook. Hmm. Yeah, kind of cherry-picked out of the diary, in a, to make in the, a to setting. make the
0: context match or to, to lose the entire context. it's going. On. I mm-hmm. could see that I could I could make Pepe Sylvia lines uh, <laughs> yeah, to something yeah. like that, but I don't know if it fully supports everything.
1: Totally, and I I think that that's kind of the the fun of this logbook is that it is so motherfucking ambiguous that you're just waiting to get punched in the face with something. You know, like where are we yeah. going with this? We're fifty four chapters in. We have four fucking chapters left. Four logbooks <laughs> left. And you're telling me it's all gonna make sense in the end, motherfucker? Yep. Cool. Uh, Vin fights the Coloss, dispatching them one at a time with ease. But in the same stroke, she's getting tired. She knows that she can't beat this army on her own, despite her best efforts, and is kind of slowly running out of the different metals. Right over the course of time. So, mm-hmm. I What'd hadn't you realized that this was like so close to the
0: end of the previous chapter. I would have gone into it a little bit more. Yeah. yeah well, we it's had...
1: it's a okay. I mean, it's reasonable. All good. This all like this entire week, like these last two chapters blend together really easily because they're all pretty pretty similar.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think for me what this proves more and more every time is how incredible Vin is mm-hmm. uh, on like a power scale, if you want to put it that way. Like she she was able to go up against 300 soldiers, many of which were, were like a big a, a large number of haze killers all at once yeah um without atium and just blaze through them with zane and is now intensely suffering from like, the effects of pewter dragging and she's out she's running out of metals and she is just fucking exhausted and she's still able to just throw these kolos around like ragdolls more or less it's really something else. It's really, really insane.
1: It is. You know, like like you said, power skill. I think it's interesting because I know that you don't mean this intentionally, right? And we've talked about this a couple of times. But the the foundational separation between power and talent with Allomancy, right? Yeah. But that she is just so fucking good at this, that there is just something on a completely different level here that, you know... I don't know. Yeah. To to yeah. your point like yeah. It's hard to even it's quantify. Con- the the term power like I said, it's conversational. No, no. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. technical. Yep, totally. And I'm I'm not I'm not picking at that at all. I just, you know, clarifying. I I really think that yeah, her throwing around a coloss like this is insane. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know. Yumming. Yumming. I really like I know that we didn't talk about it then, but I really like the way that says describes pulling the pulling of the door off the hinges and the way that like she has to have a massive counterweight on the other side and so she is just like pulling herself between two incredible incredible objects and he's like kind of in that moment worried for her in the way that she might get like yanked one direction or another whenever either of them might pancake herself yeah right exactly yeah he's super terrified of that right right it's like, but, sh- but he also is confident enough in her skill when he sees it that it's like, whoa, like that's a, mm-hmm. a crazy jump. Yeah. Again, major kudos and credit to Brandon Sanderson for being able to write action so incredibly well with such a technical grace. Yeah, it's technical grace is perfect. It's a per because you could very
0: easily just slip into hand wavy technicalities of things that she's accomplishing without actually like giving us the rundown of everything and just kind of saying, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. Just she does this. I feel like that would be probably incredibly tempting to do when writing scenes like this, just to get through it and get through all of the, all of the information that needs to get conveyed. But instead he makes very meticulous work of ensuring that every single line is consistent with the physics set up in this entirely fictional world. And it's yeah. it's admirable
1: and impressive, frankly amazing. For sure. I don't want to pretend to know Brandon's process at all. At all. But I want to I want to imagine that like any other writer, he's he's human. And so part of that process would be you get to a difficult scene to write and you maybe don't know how to describe it, and you go, Vin pulls the door off the hinges and swings it at all of the coloss. And then you move on to the next paragraph. And then later in the edit, you're like, I know that I need to describe that better when everything is fleshed out perfectly. Um, and that's yeah. why drafting is so important. Don't get me wrong. I just, I mm-hmm. I have to imagine. I love, I love the man. I He's incredibly talented, but if he could write this on a first pass, I'd be so fucking angry. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, does that make sense? <laughs> like, Yeah. 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 It's just, cause it's so good. It's, it's so well done and it's, it's like Hemingway level stripped down a lot of the time in these action scenes. And it works brilliantly that way. I wish he'd, you know, and this is just a general criticism. I wish he'd get a little bit more prosy and flourishy in Mistborn with some of the other moments. But because he he's so good at like stripping it down when it needs to be, it's, it's perfect. You know, it's like a good kit car, if that makes sense. That doesn't make any sense. I'm cutting that. <laughs> uh, good kit cars are still shit. Okay, so a mostly naked says it though confronts Lord Penrod with all the gathered soldiers that remain, as well as Breeze and Ham. They're kind of seeking the safety in the walls of the keep, and the cowardly Penrod is denying them that access. Coward might be too strong. Let me let me just like let me just say I think that Penrod is doing his best, but he never he he says something very eloquent about like taking the crown from Elland. And how, in fact, taking the crown, he totally saved his life, which is cowardly in its own right from his perspective. But it's also kind of inadvertent. This sounds like a man reading his own last rites to some degree. Like, this guy is not. He's convinced that he is dead.
0: I, I think at the same time, he's also convinced that, like, he's made the decision that if the if the crown survives and if the like the government itself survives, then they've won
1: as yeah, opposed sure. to
0: trying to save the populace and the actual hmm. city that they're governing.
1: That's a good point. That's a good point.
0: So I think that that highlights another difference between him and Elend and a lot of the assemblymen in Elend in in what they're actually motivated by,
1: mm-hmm. whether or not it's
0: the title or the people.
1: Yeah. It's a great point. It's a great point, because Elend would, would strive entirely different. He would have put everything into defending... The whole walls, and then when falling back, like Sazed and like everyone else in the crew in this moment, then it's about preserving the most life and everyone that they can. I guess it's it's they have more of a consistent ideology throughout versus Penrod is save those that I think that I can save, including preserving the power structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, naked Sazed though, in the in the freezing cold <laughs> and snow and everything else, will forever sit with me in my brain. It's, you know, and this is. I understand why you would do something like this. Again, this book, these books tread that YA to adult line. And it's moments where, like, the blood and violence comes in, where it's like, this is not YA for sure. This is, like, incredible. And even Brandon's writing isn't YA. So it's... YA is just a stupid moniker. I've already been through this a couple of different times. I think it's done. But, say is it being in a loincloth is the one thing that I find semi-unrealistic, because I think that, A, the dude's a eunuch. It's not like his... You know, like, there's, there's that whole thing, which... Yeah. I, and like like Hulk does he have a stretchy loincloth? <laughs> like. Yeah. Or did uh, like I got it as like
0: he found a curtain or something and like, "Oh, okay, yeah." Made yeah. himself a loincloth for the sake of being what what would it be? Not not humility, but uh modesty. Well, I know, I mean, modesty. modesty.
1: Yeah, modesty. Yeah. Yep. That's kind of how I read that. That matches his character. Yeah. so. Yeah, I can I can agree with that for sure.
0: But like you mentioned, same Hulk vibes.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, and at the very <laughs> like the the one plus that I can give Hulk at the very least is like, he's a scientist. He probably designed some really fucking stretchy pants. Like, <laughs> I don't think he did because I think in the comic books then, he did, but I not uh, you know, I, that's a. But they were always ripped at the bottom. He didn't.
0: He didn't make
1: like he could only afford he could only afford you know he the can only afford the top <laughs> part there's my dumb rationale for you and also i think that this was something that was adjusted for in like the 90s or 2000s not when hulk originally launches a character of course cuz obviously mm-hmm. i'm sure it was one of the first things people thought about is like uh dude goes through a lot of pants <laughs>
0: yeah i mean it, it's at least for me at this point it's it's a part of the character because it doesn't work yes and like you kind of have to keep doing it because it, it's kind of it's that's a what you expect right
1: it's literally yeah, it's literally a meme and meme yeah. in the original sense not the fucking hmm. jokey sense that we have now I, I i love and appreciate both and i understand why memes become like the word for joke but it is a culturally repetitive thing that people understand is what a meme is yeah for whatever reason you might call it a trope if you're th- talking about media anyway cool. All right, so we move back to Vin, and she's constantly thinking about where the well is, where the well could be. And I, I just want to ask, PJ, where do you think the well is? We'll give you a little prediction here. I think it's
0: at Kredik Shah.
1: Okay.
0: And I think it always had been, or at least it, it was the reason why the Lord Ruler set up shop where he did. Whether or not it, it like moves or something. After, after being taken, like moves to somewhere else and then he seeked it out, or if that's where it was initially to begin with. I don't know. I don't know what Luthadel looked like pre-millennia. Like if it was a big city or if it was nothing and he built the city around himself. There's there's a lot of questions there to sort of make a, an informed decision, but I think the heart of Credic Shaw is where the Well of Ascension is.
1: Are you suggesting that the pooping room is, it's the poopin' room. I'm just on the verge of having like a laughing fit. You know, back when you called it the poopin' room the first time, I was like, I know where this is eventually headed. <laughs> like I know where this where we're gonna be in like two books. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's gonna be a meme. All right. The poopin' room. Yeah, you know, sometimes sometimes, PJ, you accidentally strike gold, and sometimes it is also uh, in relation to a toilet, so or toilet drive teamer. So, yeah. All right. Well, it's what I do best. Excellent. So, Vin continues to cause havoc among the Coloss, killing them and dispatching them. And then she finally runs out of iron, steel, and pewter completely drained. It's it's great to see kind of her exhaustion set in as she loses these things as well. And she starts to feel slow when she doesn't have the pewter and everything else. But she's she's got one idea left. She slams into the mind of the Coloss with a duralumin enhanced soothing and latches on to the consciousness. Of the coloss in the area, able to control them like she did ten soon before, the Lord Ruler had built a weakness into these creatures too, just like the other two that he had created. What would you make of this? So I was confused by it,
0: and I'm I'm curious what you think of this. If if I'm just misreading it and it's actually clear, or if it is confusing and I'm onto something. But I couldn't exactly grasp if she was controlling a single Coloss, and they like the others were following it because it was like the biggest one, or it was like the one in charge, or whatever, or if she's able to control several at once from a single Duraliman push. I think w- what trips me up is the fact that Coloss is the plural of Coloss. <laughs>
1: That's fair. Um, That's fair. So yep. it's it's
0: really difficult to read what's happening because I know like she's they're all sort of following her but i don't know if she's controlling more than a single one i don't know so
1: i i think to kind of generally answer your question without like directly getting into things that haven't been perfectly revealed yet i would just say that soothing can affect multiple people right you can soothe in an aura right so i don't think that it is any different than soothing in an aura that makes um, total sense. I'll tell you that you'll get a more specific answer eventually, but like, that's basically the answer anyway. Of which you can apply the logic down pretty easily. So, yeah,
0: I hadn't. Um, don't know why I hadn't made. No, that I mean it's it's reasonable.
1: It's it's a reasonable question though. I I think because also to your point, a like, coloss versus coloss is also a thing. Yeah. What do you call a bunch of coloss? Coloss. The coloss. The horde. Yeah. of of Chandra though. Yeah. Chondras. You could say chondras. That's reasonable.
0: He refers to them as the chondra.
1: I Yeah, I think that's because it's like, he, yeah, but they could be chondras. Or not even the chondra. He just calls, like... We chondra.
0: Or, yeah. or Tensun just called chondra.
1: That'd be like Minnesotan, right?
0: No, that has an S. Look at all those
1: Minnesotans. We are Minnesotan. We are chondra. That's kind yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah that's I, I agree with you on the other front. I'm just saying I think that you can refer to a culture as like a singular... A lot of the times it doesn't need true. to be plural, but generally it can be pl- pluralized, which is what I was saying. It could be chondras. Um, if you're yeah. referring to a couple of chondra, maybe. Fuck. It does work both ways again, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then there's horse. Like
1: we are horse. Horse. We are. Well, that's where equestrian. We are. We are. Yeah. But eclatural. I mean, that'd be like chondran. If you want yeah, right. to, if
0: you want to like extrapolate it that way.
1: Yes, there are cases that work like this, and I'm trying to remember them while we're sitting here, and I cannot. For some, like I know that there's something else that works like this, that like has goose that same and goose. kind of. Great point. Great point. Goose and goose. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but there is there is something that has the same context, and I'm trying to I mean, remember what it, it is.
0: Specifically, it, moose yeah. and moose was the yes. actual point.
1: Yes, moose and moose actually does work. Yeah, goose and geese does not. But yes. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's PJ, it's not Moose and Moose. It's Moose and Squirrel every time. Damn, Moose, Moose and Squirrel. squirrel. Did, you, did you watch Rocky and Bullwinkle growing up? A little bit. I watched a fuck ton of Rocky and Bullwinkle growing up. I've seen, like, every episode 40 or 50 times. Like, I know some of those front to back. Anyway, okay. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, God, so good. All right. We cut to Sazed's perspective and see the co approaching before our girl, then walks out among them and in front of them. She shifts gears and changes the plan. She seems to think that she can hop around the city and take control of these coloss one group at a time without further bloodshed, where it can be avoided. Penrod acquiesces to her demands because are you going to say no to a fucking Mistborn? And she leaves clearly with the intent to take down Straff Venture. Yeah. In the she does run. talk.
0: She talks about going to more and getting them under, under control, or under her control essentially and that brings up more mechanical questions from me because i at first i was under under the impression that it spent all of the duralumin whenever used once and then that was corrected and she said you could use it a couple times how many times and does she have a stockpile of it at this point at her disposal or does she have a very very limited amount of like influencing that she can actually do
1: Point. That is a great question to be answered. I think, for the okay. most part, I would I would say in a simple context, the reason that she wants to go to Keep Venture, which is the first place that she's planning on going, is because of all of the reserve metals, uh, things good like point. that. Because she she is aware that she will run out of things. That said, when she burns Duralumin and then burns, is it zinc for soothing? Zinc, brass for soothing. So when she burns brass to soothe with the Duralumin, that would expend all of it, right? Which at the very least, gives you a hint as to how things work. So,
0: yep. So she's got to replenish regardless.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. But she's still in control right now, while she's technically out of metals.
0: True. Good point. Interesting.
1: Your interesting how? there was just perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was that. Was it. it was great. I, I don't think it really goes into it because it was so short lived. But I, I wonder how long her control over Tensoon was during that fight with Zane.
1: I'll tell you. Going back, you'll be like, you'll, you might key into something. Okay. I definitely did this past round. I was like, okay, knowing the rules now, I get it. And I got it at the time, but it was like, a, there's a thing there. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Any other thoughts on the the planned path here from Vin going into next week? Mm, going into no. our final episode. Get him. Get him. <laughs> get him.
0: <laughs>
1: Sick him. Go, go fucking get him. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. So our final note of the week is a really sad one to close out on. That of Sazed finding the corpse of Tindwill. A field of bodies, protecting or in the in between gates, running around. He he finds her. It cracks in the cold as he rolls her over. Her eyes are iced open by the cold as well. He turns off his brass mine to feel that frigid air wash over him in this moment of deep, profound sadness for our boy Sazed. His religions. That he finds comfort in in times like these or offers them up into comfort other people in comfort in times like these has even given out as comforts to others, like they offer him nothing. He's left feeling hollow, broken, and alone. It's a quote here, and this is just an unbeatable, unbeatable quote. I, I think I said earlier that whatever the 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 quote earlier was my favorite. This is the hardest quote, hardest hitting quote, maybe in the book, just because of how low it sinks our character. He was a creature who knew 300 religions, yet had faith in none of them. So when his tears fell and nearly began to freeze to his face, they gave him little comfort as his religion. They gave him as little comfort as his religions. He moaned, leaning over the frozen corpse. My life, he thought, has been a sham.
0: There's some weight there. Like, this is, this is a heavy end to this section. an incredible amount of emotion i loved personally his decision to turn off his brass mind i think explicitly he says he he does not want to feel warm in this moment it's just it's heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking man like I, i feel like i say that every time we get a sort of sad heavy moment but this one truly hurt me to read
1: yeah, because says is always the hopeful guy, right? He always has been. He's been the source of hope in a lot of times of darkness for a lot of different people. That's kind of his whole thing. Is he's the unrelenting personality of positivity. That's why Tindwell loved him, and this is heartbreaking, immensely yeah, so. It really is. Yeah, like you said, we've been seeing the slow erosion of his faith, even in his faiths, and this is this is the nail in the coffin in a lot of ways. Yeah. Any anything else on that one? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> The description of Tindwell kills me like that is it's really really unsettling
0: and it this opens up more depth of the relationship that he and Tindwell had we knew it was romantic of nature but also close but this is this is something entirely different
1: yeah yeah and this this just adds that layer and I think what's so what's so wonderful and we can kind of talk a little bit about this now that, that the relationship is over of course well I mean it's not over because you know Post-death, you can still yearn, I guess. That's a problem. But the the relationship as it was in life was one that was profoundly important to Sazed because he felt like he was less than a man, and she showed him a ton of love despite that and everything else. And she was like, That that has no bearing on how I care about you. And like that's mm-hmm. just such a touching sentiment, no matter which way you look at it, that like you are loved despite what you can't offer and what she doesn't like, that's not, that wasn't what love was about for, for them. Like it was a deeply and true and profound personal love. And she was so much fun, you know, like in kind of like a, you know, like a con. If you think about earlier yeah. in the story, like she was fun for Ellen. And like, we we had our send off last week with Ellen and it, ad- it ends on that like poor note between them. And so there's this sort of like, I'm just left with this bitter taste knowing, you know, I I didn't get to talk about this last week. So I'm talking about it now, but the fact that we left last week and we left on such a sour note, you know. And and my issue here, to some degree, is that Tindwill was right that it was a bad call to leave. It Sazed's decision to send them away was wrong. Vin may have died inadvertently because of the force that she would have expended. but And, and given, like, Ellen is safe right now, but, like, at what cost, you know? Especially since we know the Well of Ascension to be here. And we know that Vin could have done something about the Colossus. Like, they're, it just sucks. It just sucks. Tindall didn't, well, didn't have to die if Sazer wouldn't have schemed. You also can't put that yeah. completely on him because the crew agreed. Because of the what? The crew agreed.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. What a downer to leave this section on, man.
1: <sighs> I know. I, I think I can't remember if I mentioned it on air or not, but I seriously debated at the last minute adding chapter 55 because it is a very short chapter audiobook it's 18 minutes without doing any speed up uh pages i think it's like seven pages or something like that but i i wanted to end here because i think that the emotionality of this section is a great note to go out on talking about like the horrors of this war and this conflict and this battle that has been up until this point uh war of attrition and now we've we've felt profound loss on the side of two and a three quarters of a character i guess yeah Three quarters is dachshund because you don't think it's dead. Just kidding. (laughs) But yeah, man, it it is definitely a downer note to end on. And I simultaneously apologize for it. And I do not. No, it's
0: (laughs) a great, it's a great place to end, but yeah. Woof.
1: So with that, we move into the final little bit of the book that we're going to talk about this week, which is that final logbook going into the last chapter here of this part, right? So the logbook says... Rashek is to try and lead Alendi in the wrong direction to discourage him or otherwise foil his quest. Alendi doesn't know that he's been deceived; that we've all been deceived, and he will not listen to me now. So that would put,
0: if we're making a direct analogy between Alendi and Vin, says it is Quan. I think we, we were saying last
1: week that Spook was more or, or less,
0: Spook, but, yeah, yeah, Spook, because Spook knows. Yeah,
1: I don't think we have a Rashik stand-in, really. I don't, think you know. We do. Yeah, but
0: like this is kind of alluding to the
1: idea. It's at the very least alluding to there could be a Rashik stand-in that we are unaware of, but it is also definitely alluding to the idea that while Sazed hasn't been the announcer, he kind of hasn't denied being the announcer either. And mm-hmm. at the same time, Vin thinks that she's the hero, and she shouldn't think she's the hero according to Kwan. If you're looking in parallels,
0: yeah. But then the next book is called The Hero of Ages. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's spook. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a fascinating.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a, this is another reason that I, I chose to end here as opposed to next week because next week's logbook is actually, we wouldn't have read it because it would have been the even part ending and you would have not read that. Anyway, I forgot about some of those rules when I was originally breaking up the book. Anyway, point being a great cliffhanger to end on because the logbook seems to be incredibly important now <laughs> yeah but sometimes it, it doesn't
0: sometimes it doesn't you know
1: yeah yeah i'll uh, i i can not i cannot wait to talk about it next week this of course is the penultimate episode next week is going to be our finale um for this so I'm, should I'm we talk so about
0: that a little bit are we planning on covering the entire book next week or are we planning on covering primarily the final section and then covering the final like the entire book as a wrap up
1: before we get there let me pay off your predictions real quick and then we'll talk about enough we'll talk about that in just a moment here i just wanted to wrap up the idea of the log book so moving in we'll we'll go to pj's predictions we've got one to pay off this week um which is weird because it's one that you made a statement about and wasn't really a question so you can go ahead and read it and then we'll we'll determine
0: Josty's moved ahead of his army to position his moved ahead of his army to position his army of kolos so that he could be named king via threat of annihilation by the kolos and their impending predicament that that feels way more wordy than i think what i was intending but essentially the idea was jostys this was this was entirely a vie for for being named king because i don't know he has a (laughs) the most important army there
1: yeah yeah and i i think the reason that i decided to pay this off this week more or less is because we finally get the end of like Josties' arc here so it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that like we kind of had this answer a couple of weeks ago kinda but we didn't know the end game yet now we know the end game and how that resolves i'm going to drink for this one because ultimately this was what he was seeking but it's not exactly how he ended but i i think i think you had the right idea you're like our threshold for these are generally if you're over 60% correct, I'd take the drink if that makes sense. PJ took a drink. So, yeah, here I am trying to explain.
0: I figured we could split it.
1: That's fair. That's fair. I I intended to just take that one myself, but cool. That is the only prediction for this week we've got a we've got a lot left. There's like a full page, almost two pages worth of predictions left and s- there's one or two from the first book that are still unresolved that are sitting on this page, which is fun to me at this point. Mm-hmm. So we, we got Yeah, some, it's we got
0: super some fun for me.
1: <laughs> we got some questions to resolve. So um, per the previous explanations, we are not doing questions of the week until Hero of Ages because we are recording all these three episodes in one week here because we're going on vacation. So apologies, no question of the week. But we will get back to that once we get into Hero of Ages. So... With that, next week, let's talk about what we're reading and what we're going to talk about. We're going to read chapter 57 through the end. Our target with a final episode like this is generally to just talk about the section. As much as possible to focus on the text of the section. Sometimes reveals that will happen in there, of course, that might impact the entire book and such.
0: There um, there are very clearly going to be things that all
1: get tied together.
0: So it's going to be impossible yeah. to strictly keep to it, but
1: yes yeah yeah, right right it's going it will inevitably be impossible to avoid parts of the conversation that we would in other novels we might try to hold for a final episode you know what i mean like but this Mm -hmm. is all of this is so closely tied together for a very tight payoff you know all of his not all of brayden sanderson's novels are so i think our target for this last episode reading wise is to mostly talk about that text Uh, of course we're gonna have to talk about other things and then for our final episode, of which we'll be airing the week following, we are going to be talking with the Foxy Reader on Instagram about this book on the whole. And she's doing her first read through at the same time. So I think technically she started The Hero of Ages now, but that's because doing weekly reads and whatnot. So she will have just started it, but we'll we'll keep that out of the conversation, of course. So yeah, she's going to be mostly exactly where you are in terms of perspective. So
0: it's yeah, gonna really that's going to be exciting.
1: Yeah. So makes for a, It'll be makes a lot for of fun, fun little trip all right cool so that's where we'll leave you for this week
0: thank you as always to tim and andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on and check out all our links in the show notes where you can find our schedule our patreon previous episodes website all of our social medias all in one very convenient location i think there's a new link in there huh
1: there will be at least one new link this week. We have officially launched our merch, starting with T Public here to start with. We we've done a couple of we're doing a couple of other experiments and I'm looking at some local companies because we'd rather support local. But we're starting with T Public. They make great stuff. Bought plenty of stuff from T Public, and I like I like what they do. So feel free to check us out over there. It will be in our show notes. I also want to just reiterate that we did our episode. We released an episode. This past week in our short pour feed, of which is a different feed, in case you didn't know, of the show. All you have to do is search Words and Whiskey short pours, and you can find it. That is a monthly show that we're doing, of course. There's a link, again, in our wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash links on our website and as well as in our show notes. that You can go and check these things out to have easy access to. In which we announced that HowlerPod has joined our network. In addition to teasing a new show, with it's super called say with or super weird to call it with because it's a new show titled Catacomb Party: The Tales of Kana, so of which we have now announced that will be fingers crossed coming out May twenty fifth. It's exciting.
0: It's so exciting. It's
1: super exciting. We've been working it's on this. such a fun project literally since November. Yeah, yeah. It's been it has been an insane amount of time, but it is it has been rewarding as hell. Now we're all very excited. Cool. So with that, as PJ said, you can always check us out on social media, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com, Patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, and tpublic.com forward slash atomic pylon media. Other than that, anything anything else? That you can think of? I don't know Pre-vacation no, I'm, week
0: I'm super pumped to read the final like section of this book Yeah So I will I'm be very doing that excited. probably tomorrow night after
1: I'm done with it. That was my thought too I was like in any other world where you didn't have a final tomorrow I'd expect you to get, like leave and read this right away but final oh, yeah. final is what final does so yep. Exactly cool.